maze experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done My maze experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost And how it could have been won Evening, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The People's Game. We are here with a pretty bumping episode this week. We've got all the action from round three of the AFLW, and it was an absolutely huge week with five teams now locked on two wins and one loss, which is just totally against everything we expected. But we're also going to do... A special tonight, the people's question is going to be about transgender footballers. So we are going to spend the first part of our podcast discussing the case of Hannah Mouncey. I have with me again, as ever, Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And it should be a, a very interesting podcast and uh, also later on some great football to talk about as well. There is certainly plenty to talk about. So we're going to start off with Hannah Mouncey. Gordon, obviously you'll be fully aware that during the week, they yeah basically gave her the okay to play in state league football um, for the upcoming season, which goes against the decision they made in October, the day before the AFLW draft, where they basically banned her from playing in the AFLW. Uh, she is allowed, of course, to reapply for the draft at the end of this year, which is the same situation that still stands. So to start off with, with this, uh, we're going to before we start talking about the medics of it, before we talk about our opinions on whether she should be able to play or not, the first point I want to get at is just how this sequence of events has transpired. So the AFL announced in February 2016 that the start date for AFLW would be brought forward so that the competition would launch in early 2017. Uh, Following that, they announced the inaugural clubs in June. They also had the inaugural draft in October. So throughout this time period, the AFL could have been safe in the knowledge and eventually should have known that a transgender football would nominate for one of their drafts. But absolutely no policy was forthcoming from them. Tanya Hosh is the AFL GM of Inclusion and Social Policy. She was appointed on the 22nd of June 2016, so seven months before the first AFLW game. Uh, What's that? About three and a half months before the inaugural draft. So at the time, she was interviewed by Hamish McLaughlin for the Herald Sun and was quoted as saying that we are committed to inclusion and want all Australians to be able to play or participate in our game. She also said that her job is about, and I quote, trying to make sure that this game responds to those issues well so everyone feels included and can participate. So the first point I want to lead with tonight, and we're back making a decision about State League footy, but the AFL has been so thoroughly unprepared for this for so long. And I think in the context of a body of their size, with things like pride rounds and I guess a pledge that they want to be at the front of social movements in this country, they have totally failed the trans community on their policy here. No, I definitely agree. It's already been an issue that's been, not resolved, but an issue that's been addressed at the Olympic level, at other international levels, where they already have policies, procedures, and and kind of like almost flowcharts of decision-making in place for when these events occur. So So there's no element of randomness. And obviously, the the biggest example of this in recent years has been Casa Semenyak, um, who is a name that anyone that follows Olympic sport will have familiarised themselves with. Um, in the specific case of Hannah, so obviously following this decision that's basically allowed her to play in the VFLW, she came out and essentially refused to say thank you to the AFL. Um, quite a few people have knocked this as her being 
ungrateful and ungracious and I couldn't disagree with that perspective more I think that she's been pulled through five months of this potentially a little bit longer if you go even further back before the draft when they made their original decision about AFLW and I, I don't know what she's got to be thankful for this could have been cleaned up before she even nominated it could never have been or could have been something that was never specific to Hannah Mouncey it could have been an issue that was applied in a policy that was being applied to an entire community and the fact that she's essentially had to be a figurehead for this I just think has been totally unreasonable and totally unfair on her so from my perspective and I'll get your views on this in a minute Gordon I I just don't think she has anything to really be thanking them for not at all and if you think about it again from a policy and almost legal point of view if they had a situation in place and really unlike most good policy you don't make it up so you're a sporting organisation making a women's sporting league go and copy someone else's policy so look up the Olympic policy and go what are the levels Mm. of of acceptability when it comes to testosterone levels or periods of transition or any of the other other points that they use in the Olympic charter and then go well we'll just just use them like if they're good enough for the Olympics they're good enough Mm -hmm. for yeah, world sport, let's bring it into this league. And then it's all about this individual case where Hannah Mansi has to mark her claim and then it becomes a rolling news story with a, with a name and a face to it. It becomes, she might not even have applied if she knew that she was not within the guidelines for, for acceptance. She, she could have gone, yep, that's fine. I'll come back later on or, or whatever it may be. But instead she had to go, I don't, what are the rules? We don't have any rules. Can I play? No, you can't. Why not? Oh, we don't know because we don't actually have any rules to govern by. So again, it's, there's no real ethical issue here from her asking. The issue is really the incompetence of the AFL not having this already worked out mm. beforehand. And this is kind of the point that we want to get at. Tammy Hosh is in this portfolio, so I'm not arguing here about the for and against. I'm not saying that you should definitively let Hannah play. I'm not saying that you should definitively not let her play. We'll delve into that issue a little bit later because obviously, and everyone who's spoken about this already has acknowledged that it's really complicated. My point is have a policy. You have to have a policy. This can't be something that you just don't have a policy on. And for it to have been dragged out this long does a massive disservice to the whole community. And the text sort of came through. This all happened last Wednesday. So this decision was passed down. And since then, you know, the immediate message that my dad sent me was that just don't read the Twitter threads. And of course, me being me, I went and read the Twitter threads. And some of the the mail that is out there is totally horrible um, on so many different levels. And this is kind of the point that a lot of this stuff speaks to is if you look at the mental health statistics for the transgender population in Australia, the results are just astounding. And I think they put even more of an onus or should have put an even bigger onus on the AFL to sort this out um, so that the sort of stuff that we're seeing on Twitter isn't being directed. And this discussion is not taking place in a way that at some points has just been so volatile. The major issue at hand is that Hannah has become the face of this, of this debate, of this, of this, yeah, failure, failure of process, and she shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, it, it makes a personalization of these comments from people that don't understand or people that are angry about it for whatever reason. But yeah, we we seem to do we ha- we seem to live in this transphobic environment, and that's spilled obviously into sport as well. And again, so she she becomes the the face and has to wear the brunt of this even though it's not it's not her burden to bear ever, really. Mm. And I think the... I mean, the first and the common thread with the people that disagree with her right to play is that they refuse to identify her as a female, which 
I think, again, is just wrong. Let someone else have the ability and the autonomy to dictate their own identity. That has absolutely nothing to do with you. I understand that when she's put in the public domain and there is a decision to be made over whether or not she should play football, that does, or it's perceived to affect the general population. But that's where I disagree because it's not... A, it should be in the public domain. And again, we, mm. we're kind of going in circular motions here because this all comes to them, the AFL and the AFLW not having a policy in place. Because the procedure should be really simple. Well, not not simple, but it should be standardised in the fact that here's our policy, here's what the thresholds are, do you meet them, do you not? And it's all done. It's not, it's not a news story. Mm. It's just that the, the story could become, oh, Hannah Mouse is now playing AFLW this year. She happens to be a transgender person. Let's talk about that story, not should she be allowed to play it. Mm, agree. And some of the arguments that have been thrown out in the first instance um, about her size and her strength, which was essentially the basis of the decision to stop her being uh, allowing her to apply for the AFLW draft... The, the premise for that, and it was essentially the AFL has the jurisdiction to decide it on a case-by-case basis, they essentially decided that she was too big, too strong, and the risk of harm to current AFLW players was too high. And it sort of created this perception that we're looking at this woman who is just going to go in and dominate the code and run through people and trash people. And at the time, uh, her coach from Ainsley, which is her club in Canberra, spoke, and she's a good player. She's not Daisy Pierce. By any stretch. Yeah, she's not Ebony Marinoff, she's not Aaron Phillips, she's not even Emma King, she's not like these are all either strong or tall or have the football now, the football expertise. And again, the argument is short sighted and it's bigoted and it's ignorant to say that she's too big and too strong because there are big, strong athletes in this league. That's you know, and that and that as a drawing point would suggest that this is a lesser form of sport than men's sport. It, like the whole avalanche of negativity that this produces from making the assumption that a, a strong, tall, large athlete can't play women's sport goes beyond this. And we see this in other sports too. We see we see the kind of cop that Serena Williams had to had to cop. We see the kind of cop that other female athletes who don't fit the stereotypical size and form of a female athlete have to put up with. And this is just a different version of that mm. but there's a perception and this is something that's been floated on Twitter by the people that aren't in agreement with her claims being out of play there's this idea that it's unfair on the female athletes who have brought this female sport to where it is and that it'll also kind of there's been this totally ludicrous notion that it will lead to the end of female sport as we know it because men will start transitioning simply so that they can dominate female sport um, we'll get into the medical science of why that notion is preposterous Um, in the not-too-distant. But to sort of finish the first part of our discussion, I just think that it was really important that the AFL didn't subject a transgender woman to the situation that Hannah has been put in. Uh, If you are someone who's not able to have a respectful debate about the science of this without getting really opinionated about whether someone can genuinely change their gender, like, don't enter the debate. Don't go and start sending horrible messages on Twitter and just do it in a respectful way. And if you do all that and you still disagree, having looked at the science, I have no problem with that. But don't turn this into an opportunity to essentially just destroy someone's self-esteem behind your keyboard. So we have called up one of our medical friends, Joshua Mortimer, and we recorded an interview with him, which we're going to go through now, uh, just to discuss the science of 
the process of transitioning and also what Hannah specifically would have been through over the past two and a half years? So we're joined uh, this evening by Joshua Mortimer. Josh, I've got you on the line. Uh, do you want to just talk us through your own credentials to start with, please? Yeah, sure. Hey, how you going, guys? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a doctor with uh, Peninsula Health. I have been for the past few years. Um, graduated Monash Uni with honours in postgraduate medicine and have an undergraduate degree in medical science. Okay, awesome. And I believe you've got your own medical podcast as well. Uh, it's not actually a medical podcast. It's uh, a podcast with a mate of mine uh, who works with ABC, um, and it's a bit of a lighthearted take on approaching uh, 30 and, and growing up, and we essentially go through all the scary things um, associated with that, so finances, and, and there is a bit of health in there, and uh, we actually just talked about cryptocurrency for our first episode, but we're not taking ourselves too seriously, and it's a good bit of fun. Sounds uh, awfully familiar and also something uh, I probably need to listen to having turned 24 last week. <laughs> um, so we're going to launch into chatting about uh, Hannah Mouncey. So uh, as the listeners will know by now, Hannah started transitioning in 2015. Do you want to just talk us through what that process involves for her? Yeah, so um, the first thing the first thing to say about that is that transitioning is a, a, an umbrella term that means sort of different things for different people. Um, some people who identify as a specific gender um, choose not to go uh, undergo any medical therapy when they're transitioning. Um, in the case of Hannah specifically, she has obviously um, decided to undertake a medical reassignment therapy in the form of hormone replacement. Um, but reassignment therapy can also include sort of specific surgical procedures. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of um, some of them. It can be from alteration of the genitals to even facial reconstructive surgery. Um, she specifically talked about how she uh, doesn't want to um, do any of those surgeries specifically because of cost. Um, so when thinking about hormone replacement therapy specifically, um, for people in Hannah's position, so a male to female transition, the therapy um, involves taking medications, two main medications. So one of them is the feminine hormone estrogen, um, and, uh, uh, and the other one is an anti-androgen or anti-testosterone, which is the male hormone, generally speaking, um, therapies. People who are born male uh, will generally have high levels of testosterone, so people who are biologically mm -hmm. male uh, and lower levels of estrogen than women. So the process is essentially that once the person decides to uh, undertake gender uh, undertake a transition, um, they usually see a medical professional and discuss all the pros and cons of the therapy um, and they just begin starting a very low dose of an estrogen and an anti-androgen medication at the same time um, and these medications are slowly titrated upwards um, and they're monitored with regular appointments for um, uh, side effects as well as sort of obviously observing uh, the effects they're looking for in transitioning from biologically male to uh, to transgender female. Hmm. Um, and everyone is different, so it's hard to sort of outline an exact time frame, but um, doses are slowly titrated upwards um, and people start seeing the desired effects um, within sort of three to six months and other changes to their body uh closer to sort of one to three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of, and you mentioned that it isn't sort of a, it's not an easy plot because different people have different experiences, but in terms of testosterone levels across those 
sort of two-year period, where would have we have been at after, say, six months, 12 months, 18 months, and then today? So testosterone levels within the first year, it's difficult for me to answer within six months. Um, there is a, there are very few studies that have monitored the, the transition process uh, very closely, especially pertaining to sport. Um, but uh, most cases, I think it's sort of um, generally accepted that by one year, um, the testosterone level has gone down from the biologically male average of about 21 uh, it's like called nanomoles per liter is the unit measurement they use. Um, it's not really relevant, but um, by one year, this is down to one nanomole per liter. Mm-hmm. And, and by three years, it's still sticking around one nanomole per liter, so 20 times less than what they the average male starts with. Um, uh, and just to put that into context, the, the Olympic Games um, uh, allow transgender female people to compete if their testosterone levels are less than 10 nanomoles per liter. So I'm sorry I couldn't give you the specifics for the sort of timeframes that you have, but generally mm-hmm. by one year, um, you're looking at a level that's 20 times less than someone who's biologically male sex. And in terms of the physiological impact of that on her body, what sort of effect do those lowered testosterone levels have on muscle mass, on aerobic capacity, um, and on all those other things that might contribute to how Hannah plays football. Um, so specifically talking about muscle mass, first of all, um, uh, as I said, there are, there are a few, there's a, a really good experiment that was done uh, um, that studied um, people who are pre and post transition um, and used sort of MRI imaging to, to quantify the amount of muscle mass that mm-hmm. was um, pre and post the hormone therapy once their testosterone level had sort of gotten down to that one nanomole per liter that we talked about. They found that there was a significant decrease in muscle mass, much like Hannah has been stating in the media. The levels sort of decreased from uh, a muscle area of a biological male sex somewhere in between that of a biological female sex. So after a year of hormone therapy, this study found that the number decreased to around about halfway um, mm-hmm. someone who is biologically male sex and, and biologically female sex, if that makes sense. Um, and that level stayed about the same at three years after transition. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're looking at Hannah specifically, um, she's at two years, two and a half years from what I understand. Um, mm-hmm. So she would be about halfway between um, someone, the average biological male sex and average biological female sex. And I do have to um, stress the fact that AFLW players are not average females. Their, their muscle mass is going to be a lot greater than the average female. So mm-hmm. obviously this study was looking at the average, but yeah. um, you know there is a, definitely a, an area where they cross over that this study found with okay. female athletes. Yeah. Uh, and so obviously without actually doing a full body composition scan on her relative to other female athletes, it would be really difficult to know the specifics. But knowing and going on what you've told me, how would she generally measure up against an AFLW player to, to the best of your estimation? I mean, so so this – so these studies, um, as I said, they, there is a large area of, of crossover. So they, they, they plotted their results on a range and, and the range of people who transitioned from biological male sex to transgender female was uh, about a 50% overlap with biologically female sex people who are sort of what's called cisgender, so where their gender aligns with their biological sex. So um, 
I, it's difficult, as, as you said, for, for me, because I don't know Hannah's level of muscle mass relative to when she started, and it's not quantified, mm-hmm. um, but I would definitely uh, be able to – I'd be able to estimate to you that there are there are female athletes in the AFLW who have an equivalent muscle mass based mm-hmm. on these study results, which I, as I said again, are limited. So there's also obviously, and we've discussed this already, there's a notion – that if you start introducing transgender athletes into female sports, that men will start transitioning simply so they get an advantage and then women's sport will cease to exist in the format that it currently does. Um, to sort of counter that, how uh, like how hard is this as a process on the person that's undertaking the treatment? I mean, let me just say, first of all, that, that I mean, that's, that notion is very it's, – it's quite offensive if you think about it to the transgender community. I mean, uh, the, the struggles that these people go through, I mean, I can't relate to personally, and so I can never sort of speak for them. I can only talk um, facts that have been calculated. But the transgender community in general, um, you know, they, they have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, and other – mental health disorders uh but research has shown that that during their during their transition internally or or sort of mentally they actually start feeling a lot better because how they feel about themselves mentally is starting to align with what their body looks like um but this is you know very much balanced with living in what i think is quite a generally transphobic society um and 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 coming under a lot of um, verbal and sometimes physical abuse, and you can see that, you know, in the tweets and comments that that Hannah's been getting. Um, mm-hmm. The notion that someone would undertake this for a sporting advantage, frankly, I think is 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 kind of an offensive notion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that a rational person would be doing that unless I, I, I don't know who would do that to be honest. So my next question is a similar one to what we spoke about in terms of Hannah's physical strength, but is there an advantage for her in having grown up as a young male in terms of how her motor skills would have developed, not just in football, but in all sports? So is there a distinct advantage, for example, in that area? Like is she going to have better motor skills and high level motor skills simply because of her gender at a younger age? I mean, so the notion that, yes, yeah, so, I mean, the notion that the, the motor skills are always better in men versus women is still something that's being sort of researched. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't see how hormone therapy would change her motor skills, but that study hasn't been done. But uh, if you wanted me to predict what it would entail, I think that her motor skills would be set from when she was sort of biologically male. Um, to now when she's transgender female but actually some studies have shown that you know men do have an advantage in 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 a lot of areas uh, pertaining to motor skills so like speed of limb movement for example is is much more a, a male dominated thing but actually steady hand is is more uh strongly associated with being biologically female so and there's obviously a lot of environmental factors in practice that goes into developing complex motor skills but i guess to try to answer the question as best I can, um, I think that Hannah's motor skills would be set and that the hormone therapy wouldn't change that. So whatever advantages she gained as being a male through puberty, I think, would be set. And I can't see how hormones would impact that, but that's within the limits of the information available. Mm. And also, obviously, a lot of these, like, it's not like just because you're a girl, you can't play sport at a young age and develop those motor skills. So the advantage there exactly, is yeah. obviously really, really difficult to measure. Um, and as you said, there's not a huge amount of evidence really on that point. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of these things come down to practice, as we all know. And, you know, I mean, there's probably a school of thought that a lot, a lot of boys um, going through puberty are, are more encouraged to play sport, which is obviously, um, you know, changing now, which is great. Um, but there's a lot of environmental factors that come under play. So, and, and measuring someone's motor skills just purely based on what uh, sex they're, they're born as is is quite difficult because they're not obviously sports playing age when they're babies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So is there a medical consensus from your perspective as to the advantage she gains because of her background and also like following on from that point, how significant is that advantage if there is one? So I don't think... I don't think there is a medical consensus. I think that, um, as I've said sort of a few times, uh, that there isn't enough research that compare, you know, athletes pre and post transition. Um, you can see that there isn't a medical consensus. If you even look at, you know, the way the Olympic Games is just changing their, they're changing their policy. I think the last time, I may be wrong on this, but the last time they changed their policy from what I understand is, you know, in 2016, they, they decided that, you know, transgender athletes didn't have to have gender reassignment surgery. Um, they just have to have hormone replacement therapy. Um, whereas before that, it, it, you required you required to have the surgery and the hormones. Um, so to me, that speaks volumes that, you know, this is a constantly uh, evolving field and that um, more research is needed before a, 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 an absolute medical consensus is, is reached. So you speak about that. How much of an impact does the gender reassignment portion of the processes make to something like testosterone, or is that entirely dealt with by the hormone therapy? Do you mean the surgery? Yeah, the actual – so, yeah, gender-changing surgery, how does that impact something like testosterone level? The only the only change from what I understand uh, that comes with the surgery is that you remember how we talked about the anti testosterone agent you have to take. Yeah. Um, once the a component of the surgery is done to remove sort of, sort of components of the sex organ, um, your body naturally stops producing high levels of testosterone. Mm-hmm. So you can then withdraw the. Uh, anti-testosterone medication because you've had surgery that sort of makes it makes it more permanent or makes it permanent. Um, mm-hmm. So the only, that would be the only difference. Um, the hormone therapy, though, the, the testosterone levels um, are actually quoted in some studies as being um, the equivalent to to castration level uh, hormones or, 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 or post-surgery mm-hmm. hormones, if you want a better term. Thank you so much for clearing all of that up. It's obviously a bit of a minefield. I'm the only man on the podcast without a medical degree, um, although I feel like I've almost done a whole module in, in, the, in the course of the last 20 minutes. So thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. No worries. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me. So obviously um, got a lot of, we're the only person on this panel, as I've mentioned, that doesn't have a medical degree. There's a lot of stuff swimming. But when we go through this, um, Gordon, what's your take on what we've just heard? Overall, the, the notion that someone would partake in, partake in transitioning to gain a sporting advantage in a certain code does seem utterly ridiculous. Not only because there's no science really there to back it up at the moment, but also for the fact that we've mentioned before, all the other stigma attached to the process, the mental strain on the process, the, the, the cost, the, all the other effects that surround the holistic nature of this process... That would never seem worth it 
to yeah to use the Twitter term dominate women's sport. So, mm. and I think the second part of this, and this is really important, is that there's now an inconsistency in where the AFL is at. So we've got a player who's banned from playing in the AFLW, which is the so-called elite competition, but she's now allowed to play state league football. So again, she will assumedly reapply for the AFLW draft come next season and there'll be a decision made there but how you can be too big and, scr- and big and strong for the best women's football league in the land but then able to play in lesser leagues again that doesn't add up for me at all no it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and again as I mentioned at the start they really should just have adopted someone else's policy and there's no probably better policy than, than the, the Olympic policy when it comes to this hmm. and so you adopt it if she fits within the guidelines and the suggestions, suggestions, then she should be allowed to play. That is what she is currently. She's fitting within those guidelines, so she should be allowed to play. She is allowed to play at VFLW. She should be able to play AFLW, and she shouldn't have been put through all this, and she doesn't need to apologise. So moving on to the football itself in round three of the AFLW, it is... It's been a huge week. The competition has been totally turned on its head. Uh, I've got no idea what's going on. There are five teams, as we mentioned in the intro, that are two and one. The Crows have come back from the brink. Aaron Phillips was burning it up. Percentage is going to become really important. And the Pies, ladies and gentlemen, are done. So on the field over the weekend, the biggest story really, I think, to come out of it is that Katie Brennan is out indefinitely from the AFLW after scans revealed ligament damage in her ankle. So, Gordon, you caught this game that was at Norwood Oval on Saturday afternoon? Correct. Your, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, we'll do the, do the rundown. And uh, Adelaide are now back in it. Back in it after they beat uh, Western Bulldogs 6-5-41 to 5-4-34. And it was the absolute antithesis to AFLX. It was a game that was full of pressure acts, it was full of collisions, it was full of tackling, it was full of clutch moments, and it had passion, which was completely absent from the uh, the other football being played on rectangular fields throughout the weekend. So uh, it was a classic fight back as well. So the, the Adelaide Crows were trying for most of the match. Um, they went went forward uh, towards the end and scored what would turn out to be a, a clutch point in the last couple of minutes, and then uh, there was a little icing on the cake when Jenna McCormack secured their victory, seven-point victory, with a goal after the siren. Um, and I suppose it, it seemed to be the case of just the dogs lost their legs late in the, late in the match. But to delve a little bit deeper into that, and I've gone uh, into the stats as far as I can, as a little sidebar... I really implore if Champion Data is listening to this podcast to up your stats game. Everyone here is saying that you know the women's game needs to lift its professionalism, needs to lift its skill level. You need to lift your coverage because for the AFLM, you have every stat under the sun and more for the coaches. And here we get nothing more than your basic box score from the 1970s. So you, <laughs> it is quite hard to you know give the game its professional analysts that. What was what is required for you know of you know the elite levels of sport when you can't even bother taking those stats so that we can talk about them. So what I've done uh, is, in my opinion, and also the opinion of the esteemed NBA coach Stephen Kerr, uh, there's three key stats for most sports, and they all have different names because of what the sports are. But but in AFLW, they are points per inside fifty, goal accuracy, and clangers. And in Kerr's sense, he goes, they're the three vague themes, so scoring efficiency, uh, shooting efficiency, and 
ball efficiency are the three things he checks after each game before anything else to go, did we, did we nail it, did we not, or was it close? And so if we do that for this game, Adelaide had basically one and a half points per inside 50 versus Western Bulldogs one. So that's a clear advantage there for Adelaide, making sure they, they use more of their inside 50s better. And their goal actually was even at 55% each. So they've won that basically on their ball move. Then you dig deeper. So what that happened there was that Adelaide absolutely smashed the hitouts, and that is all down to Rhiannon Metcalf, who was just absolutely huge in the centre for the Crows. And so whilst there were two very very even midfields, just having that, that Ruckman dominate that early contest means that the Crows obviously get on top, and then that lets them have everything in their favour when they rush forward. And we already know from last week's pod that Beck got a... a yeah, really likes that style of football, that open, let's kick it kick it long, kick it to a contest. And when you have Aaron Phillips back, it's quite easy to, you know, back that back that policy in. However, I think again it comes down a little bit to maybe coaching, maybe a little bit to player awareness and just those little things that as this as this league becomes more professional, you'll you'll get this kind of like Fox forty three sixty segment breaking down the last two minutes of this game. Because again, I think this game really ended on a coach killer. So scores are level. Uh, the ball's getting rebounded out of the Adelaide defensive 50. And it's just as when Caddy Brennan went down with, with the ankle injury. So maybe it was a bit of distraction, but probably not. Everyone seemed pretty focused on the play. Ball gets kicked along the wing and it gets kicked from, from an Adelaide defender to a two-on-four outnumber in the Bulldogs' advantage. But they actually, Adelaide manages to actually outnumber the actual contest two-on-one. So there's just a lack of awareness in the Bulldogs there to actually hit that contest hard and kill it. And then that same kind of theme was repeated in the last two minutes with every contest seemed Adelaide was first to get into that contest and nullify it, obviously knowing that just keeping the ball in their forward 50 would be enough. And again, that's something that I think as the yeah as the game develops, you won't, you'll see less and less of that or you'll see more and more in criticism if that does occur. And you know as yourself as a coach, so that's the most frustrating thing to see is that people not executing basic game plans at the end of games. Yeah, and there was also an element of this where there was this was a must win for the Crows and I don't know how much that plays an impact in the last two minutes because the Crows here were done if they didn't get this over the line and when you look at them and they're winning four on twos and turning them into two on ones in their own favour just by willing themselves to the contest it does make you wonder whether their mindset was what got them over the line here because this as I've said they just couldn't drop here our best player theory did live on and Erin Phillips is not only the best player in the league but she's also the best player in the Lady Crows and she was their match winner there were other players that definitely contributed to the high level had outstanding games mm-hmm. but without E. Phillips there almost one carry like to be honest just like always creating always creating a presence mm-hmm. always creating a contest and doing it in the clutch moments yeah, that's what true superstars do. And it might be a massive hot take and early call, but she will be remembered as an icon of the AFLW going going forward. Oh, I have no doubt. And it was interesting on the call that... And a few people have taken obsection, a, exception to this. <laughs> Lee Montagna called her the Dustin Martin of the AFLW. Now, I actually... And I can't believe... Well, I say obsession because I think someone else is, and I'll get onto well, that later on. Well, I can't believe I'm saying this because I think that Dusty... You know, I think the sun shines out of his bum, but... Um, I think she's a better player in the women's game than Dusty is in the men's game. Like, like she's also a totally different player. I think. Yeah, she is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think it's the right comparison. Yeah. I, I think she is a very complete footballer. Um, I think she is maybe one of the few girls that could virtually play anywhere on the park and mm. just dominate. And I, I think that, yeah, her performance really did go a long way to proving our best player theory. Kudos to us. Well done. But um, 
Yeah, again, this was just a result that left has left the ladder in a state of roadblock as well, which I think is great for the future of the competition. And yeah, after we put the Moz on Melbourne, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, this could genuinely be the grand final preview, and if it was, I'd be absolutely stoked about it. I think we need to stop talking about grand finals because at the moment almost everything that doesn't involve Collingwood could be the grand final Correct. preview. But this um, is the level of the game I think would be appropriate of a, of a fitting grand. Yeah, and we'll, so I caught up with the Brisbane-Carlton game. Um, Carlton 2-6-18 were defeated by Brisbane, who kicked 6-4-40. Now, I've labelled this the Battle of the Boring and the Taylor Harris postscript. Um, boring simply because these two teams are the stingiest in the comp, with the exception of the Bulldogs. So across the first two weeks... Carlton conceded 23 points in two games, which is less than two goals a game. That's ridiculous. Brisbane conceded 52 across two games, which again leaves them slightly below the average score for the first two weeks of 30.3 in terms of what they've been giving away. Um, So this was number one defensively versus number three, just going on the stats from the early part of the season. The result of this one, I didn't think that... Uh, Carlton really ever looked super likely. There might have been a moment in the last quarter where I think they got back within a goal and Brisbane then kicked away again. But generally, Brisbane, I thought, were the better team. Um, The first quarter wasn't a great affair. It was one behind, two no behinds. There was talk on the commentary of Carlton playing almost two spare behind the ball. Um, It was probably the first time I think we've seen so far where the memo was actually adhered to by the umpires and they had to reset the players, and that happened in the last quarter. I think Kelly Underwood picked it up on the call. Um, So for me, this really played into the whole discussion we had about the memo. Like, if you're going to have a memo, like, let's have a real proper memo that imposes some rules that are concrete, and then there's no wishy-washy, because I kind of looked at this... And the commentators were looking at this and like, so what's going on? Are we playing the memo or are we not playing the memo? So that was there was an element of confusion around that. Uh, on the field for Carlton, the Hosking girls were exceptional. Katie Ashmore was really good. Um, Nat Exxon and Bella Eyre came to Brisbane from Carlton as part of the Taylor Harris trade. And so there, the, the involvement of those three girls obviously added a nice subplot. But the inside 50s were comfortably 34, or sorry, were comfortably in Brisbane's favour, 34 to 24. Brisbane also had 217 disposals to 173, so controlled the ball a lot more. More points per inside 50, 1.17 to 0.75 for the Blues, and 60% accuracy in front of goal compared to 25% accuracy for Carlton. So that was kind of epitomised by two Carlton girls hit the post in the last quarter. Um, quite late on, but still they didn't really help themselves out um, in that department. So, I mean, my takeaway really was that this was such a, just a case for proper anti-density rules. Uh, and the real star of the last quarter was Sophie Conway, who uh, she was actually interviewed by Casey Simons on the footy almanac after the game. And it transpired that her mother passed away in 2017. She's actually an ex-hockey girl as well. And her brother plays VFL down in Port Melbourne. So, her family were pretty over the moon. She kicked uh, two goals in the last quarter, which really got the Lions over the line. And I guess really this was a... I mean, this leveled these two teams up in terms of the ledger. And I guess was another result over the course of the weekend that contributed to the competition just getting tighter. Yeah, totally agree. I've got two comments there. I think the first one is we mentioned after the first end of the season when Carlton played Collingwood that we... Yeah, we weren't overly concerned about the quality of the league. We thought the actual quality of that match was more to do with the teams, mm-hmm. and we've seen that. And again, I don't think this is not this is not a game that advertises the need for an anti-density rule. This is the game that advertises the need for Carlton to get better. 
Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, they are they were con- they were pretty much convincingly beaten both on the scoreboard, on the stat sheet, pretty much on any match you're going to look at. Yep. And that is because they didn't match up well on any of the three lines. They they not terribly good at transitioning the football from defence to attack, and they're much worse than pretty much any other team in the league. Even even Collingwood are probably better at that, at that aspect of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, yeah, this is not to say, oh, this product in a whole is bad. You could probably legitimately say that Carlton is not very good at this stage. And the two wins they had are, yeah, against the lesser teams in the comp. Second point on this is more of a colour and a commentary point. But you said there before that, like, Sophie Conway was an ex-hockey girl. It seems to be a constant trope on AFLW commentary that they are, you know, oh my god, this guy's just gone to the full forward who is an ex basketball. Oh, and it's gone to an ex volleyball. It's like, do we actually care what they played beforehand? Like, they're all now footballers. Like, it, like there are plenty of athletes in the AFL, in the AFLM, that have played previous sports, played other sports, were representatives of their state or country in other sports. Like, you know, other than you know the initial time that a draftee comes in, they go, oh. Player X who happened to represent his school at four meters, or you know that kind of thing. We make those constant comparisons, but we're not continually calling Scott Penelbury the ex basketballer. No. Do we not. think that that adds any value to the situation, or is it is it more that they're clutching for things to talk on? I find I think on screen that they're clutching for things to talk about a little bit with the commentary. Um, there was a point in I think maybe the Crows game where Lee Montagna described an Aaron Phillips mark as a basketball move, like in the way that she fended her opponent off. And then what he described, I'm like, no, that's just football-y. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe it is overplayed, to be honest, and I'm probably guilty of it a little bit myself in terms of not just looking at them as footballers. Perhaps that's something for everyone in the industry to look at. Um, when we get to this point, like, they're all now, mostly, with the exception of a couple, like, only really playing football. There's only a few girls left in the league that are still true multi-sporters in the sense that they're playing both. Moving on to Sunday, this was GWS 7-6-48, defeating Collingwood 5-5-35. Now, as Lauren Arnell said on the TV coverage of this one, uh, Olympic Park can be a little bit of a wind tunnel, which is something we've seen a lot with the open grounds at AFLW, and this this was a game that was wind-affected. It, Collingwood really got off to a great start in the first quarter and kicked away, uh, kicked two or three goals. Um, but from there, it was mostly all GWS. But Collingwood swung the changes. Um, they started off with a power pack forward line of Malloy, Hutchins and Hope, who all went up there. Uh, Malloy obviously slotted back in the second quarter. Um when GWS were kicking with the wind and she pretty much stayed there for the rest of the day. Um, But in the second quarter, GWS just started to call this one back. It took, I think they kicked six behinds before they kicked a goal. Cora Staunton kicked three of those and then she copped an elbow in the snoz in the same quarter and ended up with the Chris Judd tape around her nose. I think Chris Judd made that famous. It looked a lot nice with his bald head. No, it didn't. Um, But Sophie Casey was actually offered a one-week ban for that hit, um, which I thought was probably fair. It was a raised elbow. Um... Didn't look great. Again, I'm not... Well, pretty much on the RP now, anything to the head is a week. Yeah, and so. I mean, you know, should we... Again, I didn't really have a problem with that being a one-match one match suspension, especially now that I've seen the footage on TV. It was a bit hard to pick up in real time. You just sort of see this girl walking around with tape. It's like, okay, what's happened to her? Um, Mo Hope, I guess, was obviously one of the, the focal points of this game, as she always is with Collingwood. Um, but what this kind of... I mean, she was up and down... 
So she shanked the one out early out on the full, missed a couple of field kicks where she was kicking inside 50, kicked definitely goal of the day in the last quarter from the pocket right in front of me. The amazing thing about this is she's dribbled a banana, but I was watching her do exactly the same thing in the warm-up. So there is still an element with Mo of, of freakish talent, but again, I think the Collingwood problem at the moment goes a lot deeper than her, and we'll move into that in a minute but really the crux of this game when it was still alive in the fourth quarter um, it came down to a 50 metre penalty either end so um, GWS had one that basically gave him a goal Collingwood had one that gave him a goal Chloe Malloy was basically Collingwood's best all day again but gave away a free kick at the top of the goal square um, downfield really late in the game um, which proved costly she again the goal went through um, and then Phoebe McWilliams sealed it with a massive grab and a great finish about 40 metres out on a pretty acute angle um, and just kicked it beautifully and that put the game to bed I think the free kick against Malloy was probably a little bit soft she did put the girl on the ground behind the ball but it was a case of the GWS player and this seems to happen a lot with GWS players in all forms of sport football um, being a bit of a pest and eventually got a reaction and yeah I feel like it was probably a bit harsh but I guess it goes back to my point that if she hadn't pushed her over that's there's no incident the the real story I think out of this game was Courtney Gum for GWS who kicked two last quarter goals she's 36 years old picked up by GWS out of the sandfall after she won Glenelg's best and fairest and probably thought AFLW had passed her by um, and it clearly hasn't passed her by because she was exceptional. But again, the, the rub from this really is that Collingwood are now the only club in the comp who are done. Yeah, so a couple of points on that. You mentioned Mo Hope then. I think you're going to go in, in greater detail. But I don't think the problem is Mo Hope or her game style. Yeah. I think it's the way that she's used within that team. Oh, absolutely. And you said, you know, she has these freakish talents of goal kicking. She's a goal kicker. She's essentially, and again, everyone tells us of making the comparisons, but because any other football we have to compare it to is AFL. She's an Eddie Betts type. She, mm. Eddie Betts or Serialdi is unexpected to go and you know kick the ball cleanly inside fifty, make tackles in midfield, execute handballs out to the outside channels. It's none of that. It's you go find space in the forward fifty pocket and snag ridiculous goals from whatever pocket you please. And if she was allowed to do that and play that way. I think that she would have better games, and I think Collingwood would have better games because of it. Mm. And you see the other things there is that there's an unsure setup. So you've only got seven games to play, you probably best better know who your best forwards are, who your best defenders are, and what to do. So when Chloe goes forward at the start of the game and does, and does well, and then she has to go back and suddenly your scoring dries up, it obviously suggests that if you need to score, you need to find a better defender, or you need to find a forward that can do the job and leave Chloe there. Because mm. Chloe has dominated in all of her games as that rebounding intercept marker. Because mm. she's got, obviously got a lead kick, she's got great vision, she's got great hands. And that works both ends of the field. Mm. But yeah, for Collingwood to succeed going forward, that needs to be a, a solid game plan. In terms of Collingwood and how they're playing, and I actually spent a good portion of the game at their forward end, they have an interesting array of chess pieces. They also don't really know how to use them. So Kate Sheehan came out this morning and essentially said, and the quote that's in the headline is a little bit more dynamic than the actual what she said, which is, which so, is often, so often the case. Um, the quote was, I don't know how someone like that keeps their job. It was what she said on Waitley on SEN. Now, um, essentially all she was saying is that he must be really nervous. It wasn't uh, a reflection on his character. It obviously reads that way when you just see that, that single outtake. But my question with this, and I think there's, there's firstly an interesting thing with Kate Sheen herself because she's Richmond's head of women's football and a Collingwood player that was delisted at the end of last season. So with the same coaching staff and the same list management. Well, the staff. same top 
yeah. coach. The assistant coaches have all changed. But again, it doesn't. You don't have to be much of a cynic to sort of roll your eyes a little bit here. Um, my sort of leaving that away, and just I'm not going to go into a debate about what she may or about, may not be thinking. Yeah, about what, what her biases may or may not be. I'll let other people worry about that. I'm just not sure about this notion that we should be sacking AFLW coaches in the middle of the year. Like we're three rounds in, there's four rounds to go. What do you gain from getting rid of a coach now? You get nothing. Exactly. You, you, know, you know what? You don't get anything from sacking a coach in any sport. And there are so many sports that are absolutely addicted to it. Like US sports are absolutely addicted to it. The, the fact that if, as soon as you sack a coach mid-season, you might get one free hit in the honeymoon period where the players go, oh, if they've sacked the coach, all of our jobs are online too. In sports where you can delist players mid-season, you can't in any of the Australian sports. So that's kind of null and void. And then you go from there... And you just you just create this massive destabilization. They've they already got destabilization because the league only goes for you know mm-hmm. seven rounds on a final. They only have a two month preseason, so the whole thing is disrupted regardless. And then going oh new coach, well then you just put your whole system back. Mm. You know probably two years. And the and the teams that are playing really well, Melbourne and Western Bulldogs. Most of those players play in the exhibition games as well. And Adelaide, which have a hugely strong women's scene in Adelaide at the state level, and they're all. Yeah, they're all basically the same age with the exception of probably one or two. Mm-hmm. And then they've all grown together playing together in that yeah. system. So there's a consistency across many years, which we see in all other sports. It takes, you know, a, it takes a very long time to take someone from nothing, and we had nothing with no league two years ago, to winning. Mm. So the fact that they're struggling probably is not to be unexpected. And then you add the pressure of being Collingwood and mm-hmm. everyone saying, oh, mm-hmm. we need to be the greatest team in the land and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, so... Two things really stand out. The first thing is their midfield depth just isn't there. And then the second thing is they've got good chess pieces of... I mean, what's the tallest chess piece? I'm going to stop using analogies because I'm just hurting myself. But they don't know where to put them. You know, they're not... They've got no idea how to lay their pieces on the board. And that's showing. And what I kind of learned from watching Mo Hope, and I'm really glad that I was able to actually look at her in depth, um, is... She's being asked to take a few more contested marks than she would probably like. She's now not a body shape that has any weight on her at all. She's essentially a medium to small forward, as you've just said. Um, but her running patterns are really, really smart. Like, it's easy to see how, with good service, she would kick a lot of goals. Like, absolutely no doubt. And you can watch her, the race she, way she runs is like any good forward in hockey or in football... She knows where the ball is going and she's actually leading to places two or three kicks ahead of where the ball is currently. So she's creating space and she, people are looking at her so she's not creating space to get it from the person that has it immediately. She's looking at it's going to switch and then my pocket is here and I'm going to find a way to clear that out and get, get to that space first. The problem is the ball is never arriving at mm. her end point. Um, and the goal she kicked from the pocket and her other goal was from a 50-meter penalty. She took a really good contested mark. She's kicking goals that weren't the sort of goals she was kicking when she was kicking 100 goals in the VFL. The goal that she did kick that was a miracle, She this, the bit of the goal that you won't see is the fact that she took her opponent up to a contest on the 50-meter arc, fell over, basically took her opponent out because her teammate ran the other way, picked the ball up, just carnage. And then she recovered to get back to the next contact contest inside 50, gathered the ball, and finished beautifully. But again, that's a lot of contested work. Like, that's not an easy goal. And it, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking it, it was brilliant. But that's not a goal that Mo Hope is the player. She can create that goal. She's not going to kick five goals in a game, creating goals in the way that she currently is. 
Fremantle versus Melbourne. The final game of the round and the one that really made sure that the ladder is quite a sticky predicament going to the rest, the second half of the season. Uh, Fremantle kicking exceptionally well. Six goals straight, 36. Defeated Melbourne, four goals, seven, 31. And what made this even more remarkable was the fact that Fremantle did not score in the first quarter. So we pretty much there was a howling, well not a howling blaze, but a very strong wind at uh, Fremantle Oval and Melbourne decided to kick with the wind as all smart captains do. But I knew Daisy Pierce, and uh, they kind of butchered it a little bit because uh, they didn't quite kick straight enough. So they yeah, pretty much had the game exclusively in their forward half. They had the first 15 inside 50s uh, and the game should have been sealed but they didn't do enough damage on the scoreboard and then the Dockers gradually fought their way back. Um, the major turning point in the game really was early in the second half. So the, the Dockers kicked 13 points against the Breeze. And especially these open grounds and the effects of the wind and with the shorter kicking distances on average from the, from the AFLW players, it means if you can score against the wind, they're essentially, you know, they're 12-point goals, to use a, another overused sporting analogy. Um, and then it just became down... We did see that thing that we were quite concerned about, but I think in this place it's definitely allowed and probably to be commended that Fremantle did shut down and play very defensively once they had the lead in the in the final quarter, and they obviously were kicking with the breeze. So they knew if they could shut down, play defensive, hold on to a two-goal lead, they, they would essentially win the game. That's essentially what they did. Uh, the standouts of mine, who wasn't essentially the best player, but definitely the hero, was Emily Maguire. She kicked mm-hmm. two amazing goals, mm-hmm. including the late one in the, uh, the match winner late in the mm-hmm. game. The Dockers' best player was Cara Dolan, going both through pretty much the all positions, like all good players in the AFLW seem to be able to do at the moment. Uh, 18 possessions, lots of tackles, really impacted the contest and pretty much was the, the engine that drove the Dockers to the victory. But the, by far the best player and really the best player in the league and making up for the what was probably a disappointing AFLW last year is Daisy Pierce, And she is just putting on an absolute show. So where the game was won was exactly the same. And that's why I've chosen these three, three stats. So points per inside 50 was the clear cut, but probably... Even simpler than that. So points per feed inside 50 with Fremantle, one and a half to Melbourne's just under one. But goal accuracy was 100% compared to Melbourne's 36%. So, you know, sometimes footy is really simple. They kick straight out. They made the most of the opportunities. And that's what their Melbourne coach, Mick Stoner, said. Everything was going right in the first quarter. They had all the possession. They had pretty much all the play. Every ball bounced their way. They just didn't kick enough goals. And then Fremantle kicked six straight. They made the most of it. They shut the game down. Mm. And all you can do is take your hats off to them. And so before we move on to the uh, pajama pajama football and the uh, auxiliary football that's happening, I'd like to award our votes for the People's Champion for the AFLW. And the round three votes go to one vote to Ebony Marinoff. 21 disposals, 15 mm-hmm. tackles, and was the engine room feeder that fed the machine that was Aaron Phillips. I'll tell, tell you what, just jumping in there, this is a tough list. It is a very tough <laughs> list. Uh, and if and if both play every game, I think Adelaide should make the final. That's my, my other hot mm-hmm. take for the night. Mm-hmm. They, they're probably the, the one-two combo that, that really drive Adelaide, and we saw that last year when... Uh, Ebony won the Rising Star and Aaron won the MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, two votes went to Daisy Pierce, 24 touches, four tackles, and basically was all of Melbourne's midfield during that game. 
Three votes to Cara Donnellan, 17 touches, eight tackles, four inside 50s, and it was those sublime entry kicks that allowed Frey to kick six straight. Obviously, the position of the entry is more important than the, the total number. Uh, four votes went to Courtney Gummy, you mentioned previously, two goals, 15 disposals, five marks, five tackles, an all-round performance that the Pies had no answer for. But the obvious choice and the only true choice for the People's Champion of Round 3, five votes for Aaron Phillips, four goals, two which, to put it in perspective, is sometimes a whole team score in AFLW. 15 disposals, three marks, just a pure match-winning effort from the champ of the AFLW. And as I said before, she will go down in folklore as one of this league's all-time greats. And I know it's only been a year and a half of this being a thing, but she is that good and that exciting. And if anyone needed a reason to purchase and put a price on tickets, Erin Phillips is the number one excuse or reason. So running total after three rounds, uh, we have three players equal, and that's obviously the three five-vote getters best on. So Aaron Phillips, Karen Paxman, and Ellie Blackburn all on five votes. But the most consistent player, which I love to see, is currently on top with six votes. Ahead by one vote is uh, one of my personal favourites here when we worked it out, Daisy Pierce. She's a bit stiff, I reckon, Daisy. To be only leading by one, having polled in every round, and Aaron Phillips is one before behind her and only played one game. Yeah, however, that four goals too was a pretty impressive. Did you come up? Did you come up with the voting system for that one, or was that me? That was you. So we're going to leave the women's game for a moment, yes, and we won't have Bob Catter with us this evening. We are actually going to have a legitimate discussion about AFLX, what we, which is what we witnessed on the weekend on. Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night, just in case one night wasn't enough. Mm. And, I mean, for me, my purposes for watching this were mainly journalistic um, because I saw this very much as hit and giggle without the hit, which then just made it giggle. So there's two fallacies I don't quite understand. And we went into this on our uh, little cross-promotion here. We've we've had our own uh, online magazine show from Sporting Chance called On Report, the media review panel. And uh, we talked about this, uh, the, the AFLX and the kind of media hot takes that have come out of this. And I think, hey, it's a lot lot more courage than it needed to. And that's the number one disappointment. I think mm-hmm. it's something, I'm not going to take it to the bank on this, but I think it was something ridiculous, like five times the marketing budget was spent on AFLX and it was on AFLW 2.0, which is just absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. But moving on from that fact, we're reading too much into this. So what is this? So there's two things. And the thing that's getting... Uh, talked about and reported on is the fact that the AFL sees this being their global product. I think it's a very long-term goal. And like, yes, next year's might be played in Hong Kong at some stage of the year or whatever, but the AFL will, may change it at a whim. But I think the number one driver for this is, you know, young children getting them... This is kind of like a different version of Kick, in my opinion. And so everyone's getting in a hullabaloo about this because obviously the professionals are playing it or, you know... But obviously not all the elites, but you know the listed players are playing this, and it's not a very good to watch product. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, this is my like cricket. It's it small. Is, yes. It's small. It's low contact. It's all about kick and catch. Everyone kind of gets a go. It's really easy to go from one end of the field to the other. It's simplified sport. It's my like cricket. Mm-hmm. It's it's the step between Oz kick and playing for your local club. It's that sort of thing, and so that's why I see it being used as it shouldn't ever be on television. I don't think because it's not 
football and you'll go into who said it wasn't football and to what extremes I think right now well I mean I I kind of agree with your point that this is worthy as a developmental tool it is used and I spoke to briefly I tweeted Ian Mitchell who coaches the Great Britain Swans who are the Great Britain women's team who came out here last year for the International Cup and their girls have a lot of experience playing uh, nines which Mm -hmm. is a similar format to X on a soccer pitch because obviously they have and I've mentioned this before difficulty accessing accessing full-size football grounds and and this is the same with small-sided football or small-sided sport in any code. It's a great way for people to get more contact with the ball, which means their skills improve at a greater rate. It's why Brazil are so wonderful at football generally, um, notwithstanding recent 6-1 defeats. So yeah, I think... Stop there, though, but it's also just an extension of a training drill. So is, if you go down yeah, to any, any, any sport, they always do small-sided games and they often go without pressure to begin with and add in pressure as, as your skill execution gets mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. So pretty much every training session starts Starts with two defenders, two midfielders, two forwards, kick past chains, have a shot goal. Mm. It is the basic warm up of any sport. Mm. And then you build. And then you build. Yeah. This is that warm up without the build. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's really the fundamental point. This is potentially a really good learning tool for footballers overseas, for, for young footballers here, but it is to me just a training drill. I think that if you look at the way that this changes dynamically from um, like T20, the ground is still the same size. You, all you've done is shorten the game with T20 in cricket. Rugby sevens, the ground is still the same size. You've just created space by taking players away. But obviously, rugby, fundamentally, you've still got to travel the same amount of distance to score. So I think it still maintains those elements. And I just think that goes away a little bit too much in AFL X when you can kick the field in two kicks. You know, And to me, it just was a bit boring. It was like watching ping pong. Um, it also it solves a problem that doesn't exist. So, mm. like the problem, mm. with, the problem with Test cricket, and to a lesser extent, one day cricket, is the length of play. So, people investing six hours into a one day game or five days into a Test match game was proving to be too difficult in inverted commas because Tests still outrate one days and T twenties, mm-hmm. depending on what your figures are. Mm-hmm. Rugby sevens is a completely different sport. It wasn't really born out of rugby union. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the. It was taken from an amalgamation of touch football, rugby league, and rugby union, mm-hmm. and it was, became its own thing. So mm-hmm. it was played on a, on a rugby pitch in inverted commas, but there are different rugby pitches for the different rugby codes. Mm-hmm. And it became this game that had you know modified scrums and that sort of thing. But both of those were have, were created as almost as a separate type of sport. T20 is almost a completely separate form of cricket to one-day cricket and test cricket, especially at the elite level. Rugby sevens is completely different to rugby league and rugby union. Mm. It's not used as a this way to entice people back into the mm. game. And I think that's where we get caught up in, is that we try and create these shortened versions and we kind of have a step at millennials, of which I am, saying our attention span is short. But we are my generation of the people that grow up loving football and then, you know, before we have families and children of our own to take to the football, we that's what we dedicate ourselves to. We, we do podcasts about it. Like, you know, we've sat here for three hours trying to set up and organise a call and do that sort of thing, but our attention span is too small to appreciate AFL AFL proper. Mm. Like, that is more offensive to your to your audience. So that's why I, that's why I almost kind of give them a leave pass saying this is directed at infants and children mm. as opposed to yeah. the millennials and the Twitter generation yeah which is where I guess it was somewhat popular Richard Hines obviously teed off really for the ABC uh, pretty quickly on this which I think was amusing because I think it was always something that needed to happen someone just had to have a good old fashioned rant but my fundamental gripe with this is that 
like, and you said this, it just didn't warrant the share of the marketing budget that it got relative yeah, to definitely. IFLW. And I think it's put in even better perspective and we'll touch on the comments about the lights at Icon Park later. But when we're saying we don't have budget for lights in AFLW and we have budget for circus performers at AFLX, that really confuses me. Anyway, onwards and upwards to... The JLT, um, the the JLT. I still don't know what JLT is. I don't know if it's a person, a company. I, I've got no idea. Don't tell me because I'm much much happier not knowing. Um, but there's a few. Obviously, this is going to kick off. There's nine games across the first two weeks. My favourite one is that Richmond are going to play Essendon at Norm Mins Oval, not Normans. Norm Mins. Um, who is Norm Mins? I want to know. I need to Google this ground to high heaven because whoever called their kid Norm Mins was taking the piss, and I. Oh, I'm so happy about that. Um, but what I've come to realise, and this is kind of my feeling a little bit with Richmond, is like normally in preseason, I want hope and I need dreams, and I don't need them anymore. I'm so laid back about this year. Um, I'm no longer hung up on the week by week. I'm not going to go home crying when Frio beat us after the siren this year, because I've come to the conclusion that the only thing that matters is September. And it's glorious. So the JLT for me doesn't hold that much. Uh, it won't hold my attention too much. What do you think, Gordon? No, I agree with the JLT won't hold much of my attention other than the fact that, you know, I'm a football nuffy. I play fantasy. I bet on games. I like to give out my tips, all that kind of thing. So this is a good formative stage. I am as much in preseason at this stage of the year as the players are in terms of my analysis and that kind of thing. But that's all it is. Like, I get exposure to young kids and that kind of thing, but I'm not... Don't read much into the results. Look at, you know, game times, fitness loads, who might play mm. round one, that kind of thing. But other than that, these are practice games. Mm. Like, every season has a practice has a practice period, a pre-season, and it means basically nothing. And the fact that these games get televised and reported is ridiculous. It's a good opportunity mm. for the AFL to take it out to regional areas, kind of promote the game that way, like they're doing by taking it to Norm Min's Oval. Yes, uh, Norman! <laughs> Um, and another thing's like, you know, people are questioning why is there a JLT game on a Wednesday? Well, why not? Because it's a practice game. Oh, actually, you say that, but I'm really looking forward to that. I, I, I love this because Icon Park is so easy for me to get to. It's a stone's throw from home. Just get the 19. Oh, that is 100% probably the only JLT game I'll go to because I love watching the Blues. I like Brendan Bolton. I'm interested as to whether the Blues are going to progress, and I think there's potentially more to learn by watching them in preseason than some of the other teams in this, For like Richmond, who probably won't roll, you know, well, I mean, God, as long as we've got Dusty back from Vegas, I'm happy. Um, but yeah, like, I think that's actually a good thing. I looked at that on the fixture today, and that excited me, um, mainly because Wednesday night are free, and Sundays and Saturdays are often not free. So the final segment for the evening is... Uh, the People's Champ and the People's Chump. And this is new, and I've invented it because I was feeling a little bit left out that I didn't have my own votes to give. So this is essentially just off-field. Uh, anything or anything surrounding the game, um, how I'm going to do this, I'm not going to go with Gordo's diabolical voting system that I came up with. I'm going to go with a 10-vote um, set up for the champ, 10 votes for the chump, and I'm going to spread them as I please. So I'm you know totally in command here, which is what I'm happy with. I'm a bad news first sort of bloke and always have been, so I'm going to go with the chumps. So the nominations for chump, there are so many honourable mentions, wowee. Um, I've made a rule that I'm not allowed to include federal politicians because there are so many of them that could be in here, in there this week and every week forever in the history of the world and we just become a politics podcast and that would be woeful. Um, 
So they do have to have some relation to football and they can't be on field. So, number one, uh, two votes for the week have gone to Tanya Hosh, who is the AFL GM of Inclusion and Social Policy, simply for the aforementioned Hannah Mouncey debacle. Um, Tanya, sort it out or you've got more more votes coming. Uh, one vote is actually for me and for Gordon. It's a self-nomination uh, for putting the mucker on Melbourne and the Dogs, which I think both of those clubs, they'll be terribly annoyed with us. Three votes here, and this is the leading votes for the round, go to Jordan Goey's dog, um, who really needs to lead Jordan into the right place because he's getting him into a lot of trouble. Two votes to Kane Corns for a pretty average hosting performance on the women's footy show on Sunday morning. Two votes to Nicole Livingston for... I mean, I don't know what the go is with these lights, but we don't have the budget for the lights. She said that. I don't know. Is she responsible for Icon Park? Is it something the AFL has to pay for? Is it a Carlton thing? Do Carlton need to upgrade the lights? I don't know, but like, how can we not, in a multi-million, billion, trillion dollar organisation, not have money to turn lights on? Like, you're not a poor student, Nicole. <laughs> like, Wow. So just to summarise, two Kanye Hosh, one for the boys in, in here, three for Jordan Goey's dog, two for Cancorns, two for Nicole Livingston. So the champ of the week, and this is so much more positive, um, again, 10 votes. So I've got one vote to Heath Shaw um, for his off-field performance with the GWS women, shouting them all dinner for their win. Um, I have become a Heath Shaw fan, which is weird because he used to play for Collingwood and he also plays for the Giants, and I don't really like either of those teams, but Heath Shaw's okay. How he did not get a, uh, a champ vote for not knowing what sport Roger Federer played is ridiculous, though. Sorry, when did that happen? That happened during the AFLX broadcast. No. Yeah. No. So he's doing an interview with the guys that aren't playing, <laughs> and he goes... Wow. Yeah, he said uh, you know, uh, one of his teammates is wearing a Roger Federer hat, and he said, oh, that will look good on the golf course, you know, because Roger Federer is so good. And he goes, do you mean the tennis court? That's what that's what oh, no. plays. Well, you're lucky, Heath. It's your lucky day, because I didn't pick up on that one. Um, two votes, and this is a little bit dubious, but I've given two votes to the Adelaide Crows medical team for getting Aaron Phillips on the field. It's the closest thing I could do to giving Aaron Phillips votes, because she's not allowed them under the uh, laws of this award. However, she's kind of almost got them. One vote to Martin Flanagan for the extract in the age... That is from his book that's coming out called A Wink from the Universe. Uh, the launch is next weekend. And this... I mean, I'm just really looking forward to this now. The story in The Age had Tom, Tom Liberatore losing his, losing his boots. All sorts of trivialities. The best one was Jordan Roughhead um, sort of thinking just before the centre bounce in the, the 2016 grand final that uh, he would rather be a player than the umpire because if the umpire balls as the centre bounce up into grand final, it's really, really bad. And I just love that. That sort of insight is wonderful and I'm, yeah, hands down really looking forward to reading it. Um, and that was just a nice little tidbit. Two votes to Richard Hines for his good old-fashioned rant about AFLX. Written everything that I'm thinking. I was happy that it got put out. Oh, uh, I, really, not so much. I really disagree with that. I thought for a bloke that writes for the ABC and is, an, is the off-size columnist... Offsides is meant to be this really esteemed. Yes, they have fun. Yes, they like to. They poke fun occasionally, but that was like clickbait. That was BuzzFeed essay article. 
saying it was, you know, the first the first interaction of the Victorian voluntary euthanasia laws, saying it was like a vegan... It was like a, the... What was it? The interest of a sausage at a vegan uh, food party or something like that. I was like, oh, you're just, you're just really sticking the boot into something that didn't need to stick the boot in. Like, what needed to happen was it needed to get no publicity whatsoever. The thing would be an absolute failure, and then we can just all move on. But instead, you've gone on your high horse and started kicking the, kicking the dead dog. So... I, yeah, I do the vote. So a little whack for you, Richard, but mostly thumbs up. And three votes to Tegan Higginbotham, who wrote, a, I thought, a really funny uh, sport thought in the age, um, comparing Fifty Shades Freed to the AFLW. Uh, I found it amusing. I had a chuckle. Um, enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm going to sort of leave the votes for this week there. I don't know if I've missed any honourable mentions, although there were... A number of candidates that were beyond the political realm. However, if you do have a champ or a chump, hit us up on Twitter at the handle at sc underscore mag underscore oz, and we'll mention them on next week's pod. And please don't just send a lot of votes for me because that will just get awkward. Okay, well, we've actually got no book club this week, mainly because we spent so much time talking about. Hannah Mouncey and quite rightly um, an issue that needed to be tackled Uh, if you've got any suggestions for people's question feel free to send them in to the aforementioned Twitter handle but we do have some sizzle 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 next week on the pod we are going to try and not be too biased in favour of the Mighty Tigers however we're going to be joined by Conrad Marshall who wrote uh, a year with Richmond Yellow and Black Um, I am looking forward to this. I've finally arrested the book back from the custody of my younger sister. I've got my little post-it notes out. I'm going to go through my second reading of this and maybe my third during the week so I can put all the questions that I have ever wondered about to Conrad uh, in the studio next week. Other than that, it's been a pleasure chatting to you once again. We'll have all the action from round four of the AFLW um, next week as well. And we will speak to you then. Always know what's best. Always tell you what you should have done. Monday's experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost And how it could have been won And when my 